Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. It's episode 35 of The Pick List. Have you had a good week? Hello, Laura. Very good week. Thank you. Um, Another busy week of writing. I've got a rather large report due next week, so I'm spending most of my days cranking out lots of copy at the moment. What have you been up to? Yeah, busy week for me. It's been International Women's Day this week, so Meet Business Women have launched our global mentoring platform, which has been in the making for quite some time. So if anyone's interested in that, have a look at the website because we're really excited to get that out there. Yeah, super exciting to see that it's gone live and we'll put a link in the show notes as well. Oh, thank you. Uh, This week, uh, we've got a fantastic guest. We have indeed. We're joined by Michaela Hazeldine, who's Head of Category and Customer Insight at Finnebrog. Michaela is all across the latest shopper trends and she brought some really interesting articles for us to discuss. And I didn't do too much meaty articles, did I? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And this week we have a sponsor. Yes, we have. This episode is sponsored by Shopper Intelligence. Shopper Intelligence is an industry database that puts the voice of shoppers back into category management with survey-driven metrics you don't get from other sources, comparing across all supermarket, fresh food and consumer goods categories. For more information, just go to shopperintelligence.com. Should we start the show? Michaela, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Why don't you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners who you are, what you do and how you're connected to the food industry? Yeah, of course. So uh, my name is Michaela Hazeldine. I'm Head of Category and um, Customer Insight at Finnebrogue Artisan. It's a relatively new role for me. Um, Joined Finnebrogue in September of last year. Um, And obviously with the pandemic, uh, it's, it's been quite interesting kind of integrating into a new business uh, working remotely but it's, uh, it's a great team so that, that's been good. Um, I've worked in the food industry pretty much all of my career so uh, spanning about 18 years um, I had it. I had a year off the food industry didn't like it and came straight back so uh, they either say you love it or hate it really um, and uh, yes I, I kind of have worked in um, meat uh, businesses for the last kind of five six years and obviously with the move to Finnebroke and um, how they're they're kind of developing the business as well. It's given me a really interesting insight into working in plants, but plant based arena as well, and how the two kind of uh, you know complement each other. So. Fantastic! And you are so plugged into everything that's happening around shopper trends and consumer behaviour. So we do want to quiz you a little bit on that. What are some of the trends that you're seeing for 2021 that get you really excited, or anything that you think is quite surprising or counterintuitive about what shoppers are looking for at the moment? Do you know? For me, I think I think it's been there's been a huge shift to online, and I know probably many of your guests have kind of highlighted this, but. It's how the customers are into and, and shoppers are interacting with with online that I find, uh, I, I guess, the, the most exciting, really. 
and how essentially brands and businesses that are using the platform in really, really different ways to engage with their customers. Um, you know, we've seen some some great examples and some really, really interesting kind of uplifts. And, um, you know, interestingly enough, talking to uh, one of our biggest customers the other day, Asda, how much of an uplift they've seen in terms of incrementality through through online and not stealing from, from store sales has been, been really, really interesting. Obviously, direct-to-consumer have been huge as well. Um, and I'm sure a lot of businesses, you know, like ours, are, are trying to establish the best ways to, to do that um, commercially as well. So, yeah, it's, I think it's been a really, really interesting time for everyone, really. And the pick list, of course, is all about sharing interesting articles about food and drinks. So we do want to quiz you a little bit on your reading habits as well. How do you keep up to date with what's happening in the industry? What do you read? What publications do you look at regularly? So it, it's a really interesting one. I think what I've, I've missed, um, you know, in more recent times, actually not being in office environment is, is having kind of publications just, just at hand. So very much relying on, on online article subscriptions. Um, and, you know, you kind of take it for granted. You go, actually, I'm going to have to pay for this now. You know? <laughs> um, so, yeah, very recently, you know, I've kind of decided, OK, no, let's subscribe to the grocer. So it's always been a really, really inter interesting publication for me. Um, you know, really kind of good breadth of, of different types of articles, you know, um, uh, different industries as well, which is, you know, been, been really interesting. Um, a really, really interesting one that I have um, kind of cottoned on to is, is something called Future Bridge. And it is it's quite um, um, a technological kind of advancement innovation uh, site, something I wouldn't normally look at, but there's been a few articles on there that have kind of got me thinking a bit and, and almost challenged uh, uh, what I would normally look at um, in, in ordinary circumstances. So I found that one quite interesting as well. Outside of that, anything I can beg, borrow and steal. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. But that it, Future Bridge sounds like a very interesting publication. So I'm, I'm making a mental note to, um, to check that out um, as well. Why don't you tell us about your first article first? Absolutely. Um, so the first article is called Why Peganism Could Be the Next Big Food Trend. Um, so I found this online on, on Metro um, and it was published last Thursday uh, on the 4th of March, um, written by a, a lady called Claire Coleman, who's a, a freelance author. And she writes for a number of titles, but she describes herself as um, somebody that writes about the sciencey side of beauty, which I thought was really, really interesting. Um, it, it kind of caught my eye, I guess, over the last five years plus, everything has been around flexitarianism, then into meat reducing, I kind of feel like we're moving away from that term and into meat reducing as a term, um, different diets in terms of paleo and vegan diets. And, and I have to admit, I saw this article and thought, oh gosh, what's this about now? You know, what's this next, this next big thing? Um, but actually it, it's quite simple really. And the article describes um, this, this vegan diet as a, as a paleo vegan hybrid. So I'm thinking, okay, what, what does that mean? Um, but the term really was coined by um, the, the a chap called Dr. Mark Hyman, who has got a huge kind of celebrity following. Um, and um, it, it basically just goes on to really discuss the premise of, of this diet, as he, as he calls it, and, and really discuss the launch of his new book called, called the, Ve uh, the Pegan Diet. Um, so it, it kind of subtext being 21 practical principles for reclaiming your health in a nutritionally confusing world, which I thought was um, was quite interesting. And I, I think for me, just doing a bit of background into the, the guy who wrote the book, 
Um, he's written a huge amount of books and quite a few, I think there's about 12 on the, um, on the New York uh, Times bestseller list. Um, and all of his books are very much around kind of diet fixes, diet trends. Um, but there's, there's a few with like this economic environmental spin, which I think is really, really hot topic and linking food to, to I guess, wider societal issues. Um, and the whole thing about, about this diet is um, about being really practical, really practical, um, not being restrictive at all and, and therefore easy to follow. So it's actually quite a sustainable um, diet for people to adopt. Um, you know, very much talks around it being an enjoyable, uh, real food treat type basis um, and, and very much about looking after the environment as well as your own health. So, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of parallels, I think, with how, um, you know, people are, are thinking about their health, wellness and their lifestyle at the moment. Um, what strikes me the most as you, you read through the article is, is almost how I would consider those kind of real um, discerning and savvy meat reducers already to be thinking about their health and wellness choices um, and their purchasing choices. But it kind of goes a bit further than that. And I think, you know, based on, on what I've been looking at for my existing job, the whole message around no additives and preservatives is very, very strong. And that leads quite nicely into kind of organic, local and fresh produce. And um, there's a really, really big focus on the, this, this rainbow of fruit and veg, which I think always looks so appetizing as well. But what stood out for me um, was uh, the messaging around fats as well. So there's this, this real kind of fight. He calls it the five a day. And, you know, the, how we would normally think about five a day in terms of fruit and veg. He's not talking about that at all. He's talking about five portions of good fats a day. You know, so I thought that was a bit different. And then the second thing is um, obviously, you know, the meat side of it with, with the paleo link um, and how, you know, it's about reframing meat as a side of plate rather than centre of plate. Um, so he, he discusses having, you know, no more than two kind of portions of palm size protein a day. Um, so, yeah, I, ju I just really found that that kind of very interesting. Um, and I guess for me, the impact on what that means for the meat industry is is it's really nice to see this level of balance and it's a bit different to just say a, a meat-free day and I wonder how you know consumers will adopt this in a slightly different way is it in, a, in addition to or is it just about meat reduction on, on the plate you know could both elements be be adopted I think what's safe to say is that when um, people are choosing to go down this route in terms of, of diet that actually they're going to be really, really looking for that massive enjoyment. You know, they're, they're really going to be looking for, you know, really well sourced, really sustainable, excellent quality meat, because actually if they're choosing to reduce it, they, they just want it to be fantastic. You know, so I think I think there's possibly some learnings um, for that, really. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just thought it was uh, quite an interesting new new diet that isn't actually so new. It's just slightly reframed. I'm not sure what you guys thought. Yeah, loved it. And I hadn't spotted this, so it's totally new to me. And unsurprisingly, uh, yeah, I, I scanned straight down to think, where's meat in this? And the fact that, that meat's made the cut always uh, makes me feel positive. But to, to your point, really, what does it mean for the industry? Well, we probably need to tell the story better. We need to talk about traceability more and uh, differentiate and that, that whole local piece, I, I think, is really fascinating. And I don't know what it means as well for the meat-free industry that where it's talking about um you know as you say central plate needs to be a rainbow of veg 
and fresh veg, but that doesn't necessarily fit with highly processed meat-free alternatives. So, and we've spoken previously on the show about people should be cooking with fruit and veg and using that as much as possible. Uh, and maybe that's a drive driver into it. What do you think, Julia? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think what stands out here is that this is a diet that at least has the word vegan in it. Um, but actually, I think most plant-based meat alternatives that are currently on the market, I don't think would be deemed acceptable as part of this diet. So I think um, that's that's an interesting counterpoint. It's interesting in its own right that this is a, a diet with the word vegan in it that then says, oh, up to two portions of meat um, or fish a day are all right. So I know he's trying to sort of create clarity in a nutritionally confusing world. Not sure um, that this is helping with the clarity piece. Um, I also, it did make me laugh a little bit. There's a quote in there saying, you know, most diets fail because they're so restrictive. And you go, okay, so you are doing paleo plus vegan, plus you also want people to be gluten-free and you want them to be wary of dairy as he um, puts it in there. That probably amounts to quite a few restrictions um, for, for most people. So um, I think if, for me, the standout piece here is the focus on unprocessed whole natural foods and the messaging around quality. And as you say, Laura, the fact that a lot of this meat alternatives and plant based market actually wouldn't be compatible with, with something like that. Whether this is something that is going to have mainstream appeal in this form as a as an eating sort of protocol in its own right, I'm not sure. I think this sounds quite restrictive. I think there is a long list of stuff here that you wouldn't be able to use that would be um, quite difficult, I think, for, for most people to, to incorporate. And I think that sort of flexitarian ethos um, that sort of speaks a little bit more to moderation I think is still a bit more accessible than, than something like that. But yeah, always interesting to see new terms and, and new diet concepts popping up. Julie, what's your first pick this week? My first pick this week is uh, from Wired UK, and it's an article titled Feeding Cows Seaweed Could Solve the Big Bovine Burp Problem, which is a great headline to begin with. Um, but this is about uh, a particular type of seaweed called Asparagopsis taxiformis. I'm hoping I've not butchered that. Um, and it's attracting quite a bit of scientific interest because of its ability to reduce methane emissions when added as a supplement to cows' feed rations. This particular article focuses on some Australian research in particular, um, and the results, early results, are really quite encouraging, suggesting that methane could be reduced by as much as 85% if this uh, particular variety of seaweed is added to feed rations. Now, we should say there is more work needed here to make this commercially viable. Um, in particular, what the researchers are trying to do is actually simplify the structure of the asparagopsis seaweed to make it easier to scale up production. Because even though you only need tiny amounts of seaweed per feed ration, there are a lot of cows on the planet. So if you'd be looking to do this at scale, you would uh, necessarily be looking at some quite significant quantities of seaweed as well. They are also looking at how best to process harvested seaweed and extract the key compound in the seaweed that reduces methane emissions. There are some trials currently running in Vietnam, the article points out, and the first commercial harvest is planned for 2021. And of course, then you would expect that to take a few more years to, to really then be, be able to, to be scalable. 
the Australians aren't the only ones investigating seaweed as a supplement to reduce methane emissions. I think we should probably stress that. And we have talked about uh, seaweed supplementation on the podcast here in various forms um, before. There are trials and research going on elsewhere in other parts of the world involving different varieties of, of seaweed. Um, so if you're in the food industry, definitely if you're in the meat industry, the idea of adding seaweed um, as a supplement to, to feed rations won't be new to you. What I think is interesting about an article like this is how these quite cutting edge research projects feed through to the mainstream consumer media and how they are framed there as part of the debate about sustainable diets and sustainable meat consumption in particular. There's a lot of positive buzz about seaweed generally, so you do wonder whether there is an opportunity here to engage consumers on I suppose what is normally a fairly obscure sub subject, i.e. feed rations, by making that link to seaweed, seaweed which has a lot of uh, a positive buzz and, and positive connotations with it. Um, I think it's just being interesting, it's quite interesting how it's being positioned as a potential solution and how animal feed in general is becoming a much more consumer-focused topic than it has been in the past. We've talked on the podcast um, about lemongrass being added to uh, to feed rations in Burger King's beef supply chain. Um, so we're seeing more of these sort of um, stories about what is happening within agriculture supply chains, what's happening in terms of what these animals are fed, uh, much more than, than we would have seen um, in the past. And Michaela, I was really interested in your take on on this from a sort of shopper marketing, but also a, a consumer marketing more generally uh, perspective, because I think Finnebroek has also grasped a fairly obscure uh, issue in, in nitrates um, and has managed to turn that into something that gets consumers engaged and, and, and gets consumers sort of excited and willing to pay a premium. Do you see there's a similar potential to really get consumers to be thinking and talking about what goes into feed rations? You know, you know, it's really interesting, I guess. Feed and animal feed has probably become much more top of mind on the basis of all of the discussions around, uh, gosh, I probably started with cowspiracy, didn't it? I think maybe if, but in terms of mainstream. Um, I think the more customers understand or hear, the more that they want to understand. And Really, I think it's, you know, a lot of the times it's about, about myth busting. When I read the article, I think I, my first thought, call it the cynic of me, was, okay, well, it talks around burp methane. And I, my, my first gut reaction was, what about the other end? <laughs> um, you know, and actually looked into it. And, and most of, of the, the, um, the, the harmful methane uh, does come from, from the burp, about 90 to 95%, apparently. So that was quite interesting. And I, I just think, you know, the more that customer, consumers understand, the more informed they can be to make decisions. Now, you know, when it comes to branding or front-of-pack messages, you know, there are a lot of front-of-pack messages um, in terms of welfare, nutrition, so on and so forth. So for me, it's always about understanding what is the most uh, important message that that customers want want to see you know and want to hear about and actually if that if that is to do with how cattle um, and animals are fed then great you know there's been a huge kind of surge in uh, positivity around grass-fed cattle um, over the last few years so um, you know maybe maybe there is uh, the next big thing is you know seaweed fed cattle as a as a positive so 
yeah, remains to be seen, but um, in, interesting take. So. And I'd agree with that. And I'm interested as well, as, as you've alluded to there, Julia, about the, the lemongrass for the Burger King supply chain. Will items like this in certain supply chains become a differentiator for certain retailers, certain food service operators that are linked with uh, specific processes? Because it's been really interesting to watch, I guess, over the last year or so, how some processes in the meat industry are working pre-competitively on some issues and others uh, are working in a, to differentiate themselves and understandably so on other issues. So testing different technologies, um, I don't know, their own pilot farms and all this sort of thing. So I'm guessing there'll be, there'll be a lot of interest from specific supply chains to look at this. And, and I think that the consumer message does pull through, doesn't it, as, as we did see with Burger King. And you could imagine McDonald's explaining their supply chain if they had a different feed ration coming through and what that meant in a really simple way because it seems to matter to more customers now and it was interesting only this week Morrisons are talking about going carbon neutral with um, their farmers and you know I don't know two years ago you, you wouldn't have heard that sort of language but that was so important and to their consumers too it would probably just been a b2b thing but yeah pulling that through that I would have thought probably in, in, in store and in-store messaging so yeah I, I think the market's ready for it just going to say an interesting on the carbon neutral message you know people are taking it further now and talking about carbon negative which you know it's it, people like Brewdog as an example with, with their messaging there it's it's always evolving isn't it really and I think you know any kind of feed story if there is something that really matters whether that be environmental you know in the case of uh, Welsh salt marsh lamb as an example you know the benefit there is well you've you've got kind of a provenance message but it's about taste ultimately as well so it, it's what's the most important message in, in these food regimes, I think, that, that matter to consumers. Laura, what's your first pick for us? Uh, unfortunately, my pick isn't about meat, it's about spuds. So uh, <laughs> we should change the chat a little bit. So this is from the Sunday Times uh, this weekend, and it's muddy spuds are back on shelves to help chip away at waste. And I was really interested by this. Um, it's for the first time since the 1970s, Tesco are attempting to reduce food waste uh, in the home by putting uh, unwashed potatoes on their shelves. Um, and they're saying that soil on potatoes helps to block out light and slow down decay, potentially doubling shelf life between uh, 5 to 11 days. The Tesco trials across 262 stores and they're using it on an organic line uh, at the moment uh, of potatoes. They're going to test to see how consumers feel about soil on their potatoes with the potential to expand across more products and uh, test the potatoes across more stores. And I, what I really liked about the article as well, it talked about calibrating their scales uh, so pay, people aren't paying for the mud on the potatoes. Uh, that, that That's negated and you're just paying for the potato itself if there was any concern about that um, and we spoke about on the show last week about the the wrap and the food waste uh, week um, and there's a, a quote from wrap in the, the this article and it talks about potatoes being one of the most likely items to be thrown away in terms of food in the home and I have to admit I, I can be sometimes guilty of that that you forget about those couple of potatoes in the bottom of the cupboard and you think oh is that able to to wash off those bits that are growing out of it or is it past the point of no return there's there's often that thought um and 
it's really interesting as well. I liked at the end of the article, it talks about um, muddy spuds are just one of the uh, several things from the 1970s that are making a food revival in lockdown. It also states in February, sales of spam were up 50%, which I liked as a, a throwaway comment. Um, I, I guess I'm in two minds about this because we just... Um, we're so conditioned now in a supermarket to make sure your hands are clean, everything's clean, whatever you do, don't touch anything, don't touch anything anymore than you need to touch, and then putting a muddy product on shelf, which feels natural and um, I guess it is a great idea to stop waste. Is that counterintuitive against the whole hand sanitizer issue that we're up against at the moment? What do you think, Michaela? Uh, do you know, I, I really, really uh, like this article and I kind of feel like there's this definite trend to, you know, a more natural diet, less package. There's been so much um, conversation around, you know, plastic as an example. And there's, you know, certainly throughout the pandemic, you know, the subscription to veg boxes uh, where people could has really, really increased, you know. And, and again, as we said before, you know, the organic and, and local food, that's really kind of picking up so so I kind of think that having a bit of mud on your spud uh isn't such a bad thing because it really reinforces this whole kind of naturalness and and as you say it feels really kind of nostalgic and almost kind of less added, added value and going back to basics I think the other thing that I kind of picked up on here as well and it, I kind of put myself back in the consumer shoes if you like um in that if I if I've got prepackaged uh, you know veg, I'm so conditioned to look at best before dates, and let's you know be kind of clear that there is still quite a lot of confusion with consumers around best before use by so on and so forth. Um, but you're kind of led by that. So when you start to think about loose produce, you're not only getting rid of the the, the plastic issue, but I feel like you're you're taking away that um, that focus on. Uh, you know best before as, as an example and actually just using your common sense as to is is this potato as an example so knobbly or, or so soft that I can't actually use it so I think from a waste perspective it's a, it's a really really great uh, initiative and for me it kind of feels like the next step on from wonky veg boxes you know um, so it'd be interesting to see where it goes where 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 they decide to expand it in terms of uh, either other stores or you know, other veg. I think there was a lot of comments around carrots tasting better. And one which um, I, I want to look in a bit more, apparently there are vitamin benefits from soil on veg, uh, you know, with B12, which of course, um, you know, a lot of people struggle to to get enough B12 in their diet. So I thought that that was quite interesting, but definitely, you know, feeling much more nostalgic back to basics, less about this this kind of pre-packaged pre type offering in the supermarket. I think it's a great point about um, almost forcing consumers to use their own judgment rather than relying um, on dates on pack to tell them whether um, fruit and veg are, are still fine to eat. Um, I, I could definitely see that being a benefit um, there. And, and I think that the nice thing about potatoes and muddy potatoes in particular is that actually it's really easy for the consumer to tell that this is an unwashed product. The bit that I'm always a little bit uncomfortable with is that when you go to supermarkets and you're looking at pre-packed salad and some of it will be washed and some of it won't be washed. And I think the difference there, 
I know I have sometimes, you know, if you don't pay attention, it's really, really quickly, you've got some unwashed salad on your plate, which is obviously not great from a food safety perspective. So I think the choice of spuds in particular um, is, is, is great because you just, you have a really obvious visual cue there. The other thing that I think is interesting then from a waste perspective is um, obviously these are going to be offered loose. And I think so much of that waste about with potatoes is tied to pack sizes and retailers not offering as many um, varieties to, to be bought loose. So you're sort of forced to buy at least a kilo in, in most cases, and then you might not need that. And, and that's how you end up wasting things. So for me, it's that combination of Yes, it's the soil and that might have some own sort of waste reduction benefits, but is also the ability to actually pick the quantities that you actually need rather than being forced in, into much larger pack sizes. Michaela, what's your second pick for us? Okay, so my, my second pick um, is uh, called uh, New Freshness Timer Label to Help Food Waste. So again, it's another great food waste article, obviously being um, Food Waste Action Week last week. I think there's possibly a bit of a theme going on here. Um, so I picked this up last Friday from Nam News. Uh, and again, it stood out to me just, just because there's been, there was so much talk about food waste last week. Um, and we know certainly that food waste is, uh, has been and continues to be a, a huge problem. Um, you know, we see Unilever, as an example, last week kind of outlining their plans to reduce or half, in fact, their food, food waste by 2025, you know, um, and, and looking at initiatives such as uh, Too Good To Go, as an example, so really kind of helping out the food service sector. So for me, that's tackling waste kind of pre-purchase. Um, another great thing, I guess, just on this, this whole um, uh, subject is um, the, there's a new food sharing app as well called Olio. Um, which kind of tackles the at-home unwanted element. And what stood out for me is this article kind of really tackles, I guess, um, that at-home confidence uh, issue in terms of food safety, but also potentially looking at the quality as well. And we use this really, really clever um, packaging innovation. Um, and I immediately related to it. Um, so one of my previous roles was, was working um, in a business that had a, a really high proportion of sliced cooked meats. Um, and all the insight we were doing at the time uh, kind of pointed to peel and reseal packs, um, real kind of nervousness once the pack was open, um, not only about the food safety, but also this, this quality element. And, and one of the facts in this article um, just shocked me that 2.2 million slices of cooked meats are binned every day in the UK. That's a huge, huge amount, you know, just think how many starnies you could make out of that. Um, but, but the innovation um, which has um, been put in place by Insignia Technologies uses this uh, smart ink technology to, to provide a, a visual cue on pack um, with regards to the, the level or, um, you know, or type of product freshness. So it says fresh, still fresh, um, and then past best. Um, so it's developed for use with um, food that's been packed in a, in a modified atmosphere. And basically the label or the sticker, because um, it can be applied to a, a top web seal, will change colour to a key on the icon um, to let you know and indicate when, when this product is from a food safety perspective past, it, past its best. So for me, you know, for consumers, it really takes away any uncertainty or ambiguity 
and really increases confidence, ultimately, I guess, preventing that unnecessary uh, fridge purging. I know I do it every kind of every kind of week before the shop arrives, I'm in the fridge going, well, that's gone, that's gone, you know. And, and I think this whole visual cue is, is almost a call to action. Firstly, as I say, for this confidence to go, actually, it's getting close. I need to do something or make something. So it just, first, just brings it to front of mind, really. Um, the other really interesting use for this, um, and I think it's really clever, it can also pick up um, temperature changes. So it's sensitive to temperature. So you think of the application across kind of food service as an example. I kind of feel like you could then start to avoid even in retail, but these once opened use within three days type messages, which quite often I think are put in place on the basis of just in case, you know. Um, I'm no technical expert, of course, but um, you know, I think it could really help in, in both of those applications. From a customer perspective and a shopper perspective, I guess my first thought really was around um, front of uh, pack and space on pack. You know, I think I, we were talking about it earlier in terms of what's your hierarchy of messaging and, and, and importance, you know. Um, and I think that would be really, really interesting to try and understand, certainly in that application of cooked meats. You know, I know from, from uh, previous experience that it, that it is important, but how quickly would, would the consumer and the shopper adopt that and really understand that and use that? Um, but actually in that, in that kind of cooked meats example, I can really seal combined with um, that peel reseal technology, not only you covering off food safety, but also that, that, that quality perception as well. Um, so I, I think it's a great innovation. I thought it was super nifty and uh, gets around the fact that me just using a Sharpie pen on stuff of when I opened it, uh, which uh, probably has uh, got food safety issues of its own with that. Um, and, and also, I guess, I, and from a personal perspective, cooked meat, is, as you say, is a prime example. I'll open a pack of cooked meat and then I'll put it probably in a sandwich bag. And then you're thinking you're using more plastic and then you'll probably throw that sandwich bag away, uh, which is, is less than ideal. So something like this is really, really handy. And I, and I can see, again, some players using it maybe to differentiate maybe across certain ranges to show as, as added values we've seen about, I guess, um, steaks coming with cardboard backing with some of the uh, processes as a, as a differentiator. What do you think, Julia? I think this sounds really impressive and, and the level of innovation we've seen around um, packaging and just making it easier for consumers to understand when food might still be edible and, and, and safe to eat, um, I, I think has been really impressive. The, I'm a, a little bit in two minds about it, uh, and partly because of what, Michaela, you were talking about in terms of the sort of hierarchy of messaging, but also the consistency around messaging. I don't know how I feel about food safety being a, a differentiator and a point of difference and making asking consumers to make sense of, um, no doubt, super exciting technology, but it's all slightly different and the messaging is all slightly different and what those new labels might tell you might be slightly different. What's the scope for confusion there? And what's the scope for, for consumers sort of potentially misunderstanding what these labels indicate? Now, I think this particular example from what I saw on the photo in the, in the article, I think the messaging there is quite explicit in, in terms of saying this, you know, color means this and this color means don't eat it. Um, so, so there might well be ways um, to get a, to get around that. But yeah, that's my my slight concern that we're just adding a layer of complexity here and we're bombarding consumers with 
different labels that do slightly different things on what is a really fundamental safety issue still, especially when you're talking about meat. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting to see how it gets rolled out. You're telling me the Sharpie pen's still okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that sounds way more organised than what I do, which is just put it in a Tupperware <laughs> box and hope for the best. So I think you're you're pretty cutting edge with your food safety protocol compared to what I do. Come from me, because all my Tupperware goes missing. So. <laughs> <laughs> when it goes crusty, I think, ah, oh, best not eat that. That's not, yeah, but it's, again, probably not ideal. Julia, what's your second pick this week? My second pick this week is from the BBC, and it's an article titled Unilever Drops Word Normal from Beauty Products. This is about the latest responsible advertising initiative announced by Unilever. They have long talked about what it means to be a responsible advertiser and what it means to use your advertising budgets responsibly in terms of where you spend your money, the platforms you engage with, and also the messaging you put out into the world through your advertising, but also on your products. This is the latest iteration of that. The focus this time is on beauty products, um, and there are really two sort of areas that they're tackling with this latest initiative. The first one is the use of what they describe as excessive photo editing. And the second would be uh, removing the word normal to describe skin tone, body shape, body proportion, etc. Um, what Unilever are saying is they'll be removing the word normal from about 200 products. So descriptions like for normal and oily skin would be replaced with, uh, with something that wouldn't use the word normal. Um, and they'll also ban excessive editing on images used in their advertising and marketing. And interestingly, this includes any images produced by influencers they're working with, which immediately made me go, oh, I wonder how they'll police that. Um, and it also made me go, oh, I wonder what excessive editing really means in this context. Because I guess, particularly on social media, unrealistic beauty standards aren't just created through photo editing software, although that is definitely part of the problem. And it's not just filters, although they are also part of the issue. But, you know, high quality photography equipment, knowing how to take professional photographs, professional lighting, makeup, all of that obviously also uh, creates a, a look and a feel that is unachievable, um, I think, to many people. So... It strikes me there's potentially quite a lot of scope for, for unrealistic images, but I suppose it is a starting point, and I think it's really positive to see them take a public stand on this and, and also putting that pressure on the influencers that they're working with. Much of this is about responding to younger consumers, Gen Z in particular, who have really different expectations around inclusivity, the kind of language that brands are using, and the way products are marketed to them. They are looking much more for a positive and inclusive approach instead of the classic advertising trick of, there's something wrong with you and your body and this product will fix it. So um, I think it's a it's a really positive change and it's interesting to see such a big brand owner um, make these changes um, and, and make their messaging more inclusive. The question this raises for me, and not necessarily about Unilever specifically, but more generally, is when will we see this sort of insight apply to food? Because I'm always surprised to see just how many food brands still use really negative messaging and language about food, lots of shaming, 
this whole concept of guilt-free snacking, permissible snacking, drives me crazy. No one needs a permission to snack. What are you talking about? Um, and I just I think there's so much of that sort of diet chatter that is still happening within the food world and particularly for products that are targeted at women um, so I'm really keen to see some of this insight that we're seeing in in the beauty world carry through to food and have some of that sort of tiresome diet language food shaming guilt all of those sort of associations be replaced with something that is much more food positive um so yeah i'll be watching this with great interest and i really hope we're going to see less of that toxic sort of diet language in in our food marketing Makeda, what do you what did you make of the article and and are you can you imagine that we're starting to see something similar around food as well I think there's a there's a look there's a real change isn't there to positive health positive eating um and and interestingly enough actually I hadn't really considered you know what you were just describing um before um and it, it's almost like actually you're right there is a, a even I use the the word about you know permissibility and, and being more permissible you know especially having seen that side of meat versus plant-based as well so it's a really really interesting take actually it was interesting. The biggest thing that I took from it is around the trend for personalization, because actually the removal of the word normal and things being standardized that almost already a thing of the past, especially with the advent of online shopping, you know, you know, you can already go online and get personalized cosmetics, personalized nutrition, personalized diet plans or, or you know, full kind of lifestyle plans. And I think that's the way that it's going for me, that removal of the word normal kind of I guess fed more into the personalization of and how that that would kind of manifest in in food if you like and how um how retailers and how um producers could respond to personalization in in food that that was the biggest thing I took from that yeah you're right and in that personalization element I'm seeing more and more particularly for skincare uh, and I I was interested I, I totally agree with the article about the inclusivity and we want to see people that look like us and the reality of not just a airbrushed skinny 18 year old and you know we want to see everyone that, that looks like us and it helps us engage with those products and and it is the right thing to do the language bit i think um can be the right thing to do but what's the new narrative going to be the reason i say that is my skin isn't normal it's really dry so i know when i'm shopping i don't go to the normal products i go to the really dry <laughs> dry skin so what's the new stuff going to be to make sure that I don't inadvertently spend money on the whatever the new I hate using the term new normal it's overused at the moment but the new normal so other people in that spectrum of I, I guess what I'm trying to say is people know where their skin is on that spectrum and they know reg regardless of their age and demographic so I'll be really intrigued to see how Unilever research that and bring that to market and I'm sure, actually, that the whole process, you know, is is actually going to be quite disruptive, but in a good way, because I think, you know, when when things like that change on a on a mass scale and and almost spark a reaction from other uh, from other brands, other other suppliers, other producers, then it just starts to really kind of shake up purchasing, and 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 you know, consumers will really kind of start to look and change their purchasing patterns potentially. So it'll be quite interesting to see how it how it works for them. 
Dora, what's your second pick for us? Uh, my second pick this week is from Food Manufacture, uh, and it's headlined, Diageo leads the way for women in leadership in food processing. So this is off the back of the fact this week it's been International Women's uh, Day on Monday, which um, you may have seen across some social media, and the Hampton Alexander Review, which charts board-level gender balance in FTSE companies, have recently uh, put an update out about how the FTSE uh, 100 and 250 are performing. So what the article does, it, it chats through with the uh, food processes within the, the those categories and how they're performing in terms of uh, uh, gender equality and as the headline says Diageo is uh, is at the top of the game there and it, the article talks about uh, almost 38% of um, the Diageo exec committee are uh, female and there's a great quote in there from the Diageo CEO and I think he just really encapsulates why this is important. And it says, I've seen firsthand the power of diversity in the boardroom and around the exec table. I've experienced positive difference it makes in the quality of decision making and the varied perspectives brought to the debate and the performance it drives. At Diageo, we've witnessed the impact of inclusive cultures had on business performance. And he goes on to, to give a bit more detail. And that's the crux of it for me. But for uh, uh, food processing, and sometimes we can be a little bit late to the party, it's about business performance and sometimes it can feel uh, a bit of a, a pony parade from some companies that, look, we've got some women, but actually it's, it has to be more than that. It has to be in the organisation's DNA and it can't be just about gender either. Back to our earlier point about inclusivity, it needs to be driving uh, talent from all aspects into, into food processing. But it talks about uh, Green Corp being one of the uh, leaders in the FTSE 200 and Britvic uh, in there about having a, a good gender balance on their board. And it was also really nice to have a mention of Cranswick, the only meat company in the uh, in the FTSE 200 mentioned about getting gender balance and have been hugely um, supportive of meat businesswomen. Uh, and we're on episode 35 of the pick list and I am picking an article here uh, that has a quote from me in it as well. So I, I, I half thought, should I, shouldn't I? But I, I, I guess I make no apology for it. And for uh, the, the, the quote from me, it talks about meat businesswomen. And this week we've launched a global mentoring uh, programme for women working in the meat industry. And I guess I'm just really fascinated about not only the coverage that that's had this week, which is being great, both um, in food manufacture, the grocer and others, but also how much interest there has been from industry. And I think the meat industry is realising that the players like Cranswick and other huge processors, that we need to be making the industry more attractive to female talent and the food processing more in general, that it's not naturally attractive it's not a, a sexy industry it's not what you leave uni or school and think I'm going to go into food processing so I think this in the long term will hopefully show role modeling and Diageo and, and others doing a great job and uh, yeah personal plug time sorry Michaela what are your thoughts yeah I thought it was, it was great obviously being International Women's Day and you know you, you picked up on a quote there um and uh, actually, as you do on LinkedIn, I, I saw this great quote from um, a page called The Female Lead, which is a definite must follow. Now, but it was a quote from, from Jacinda. And I think this kind of, for me, highlights um, why uh, gender balance is, is amazing uh, and is a, is, is a really good thing for all businesses, all leadership boards, all execs to, to um, be looking into and kind of driving. And the quote is, one of the criticisms I've faced over the years 
is that I'm not aggressive or assertive enough. Or maybe somehow, because I'm empathetic, I'm weak. I totally rebel against that. I refuse to believe that you cannot be both compassionate and strong. You know, and what what a woman, Jacinda's done, uh, you know, amazing things. Um, and, and it really stood out to me because what it highlights is that empathy is, is you know, one of those, those skills, I think, more maybe naturally, uh, you know, for some women and for some men as well, but for, for some women, um, you know, naturally uh, adopted. And, you know, for having that type of um, skill set and being accessible and approachable um, really kind of helps to give that different perspective to, to business and how we approach um, a pandemic or a crisis, you know, whatever the situation might be. Because ultimately, we know that if, if a board is accessible and an executive is accessible, you know, you get the best out of your people. And I think ultimately, you know, getting the best out of your people drives whatever, whatever you know, KPI needs to drive. It's all about motivation. Um, so, so that for me is, is kind of this, this whole thing around inclusivity and, and the gender balance was, was what really stood out outside of all the numbers that were in there and all the great things that all of those organisations are doing. That's what stood out for me. And I think, you know, the more um, equality that we have on these, these exec boards and, and leadership will create the domino effect. You know, if you've, if you've got a young kind of graduate going in and see a really strong, confident female leader who's really looked up to and admired by all of her peers, it just gives almost that, that you know, I could do that. It's a bit of an aspiration as well. So I, I think the more the more women we see in these these boards the more kind of um women will aspire to do the same thing Michaela, it's been fantastic to have you on the show thank you so much for being our guest thank you julia thank you laura for having me that's all we have for you this week thank you so much for listening you can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk if you enjoyed our show please subscribe give it a rating and leave a review it makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the feed industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.